You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, Senior Critic at Large for The Washington Post. And it is my pleasure to kick off Black History Month with our series on Black women in American history. And we begin with a conversation about Ida B. Wells. And we're joined by Michelle Duster, who's written extensively about her great grandmother. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Oh, thanks for having me so much, Robin. I, I wanted to um, just remind our audience that you can participate in the conversation if you uh, can tweet your questions and comments to the handle post live. Um, we will hopefully get to some of those questions. Uh, Michelle, I wanted to start um, with a quote uh, from your great grandmother. The way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. It seems like such a simple statement, but it really resonates today, I think, when the question of truth and turning the light on truth have become um, really contentious issues. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about what drove your great-grandmother's sense of social justice. Well, what drove uh, my great-grandmother's sense of social justice was um, the time that she was living in. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, during her time, there was an extraordinary amount of violence against the African-American community, um, including lynching, which is what she became really famous for writing about. Um, and she unfortunately lost three of her friends to lynching. Um, she was the first-hand witness to several race riots that happened. Um, and so this was the time that she was living in. And um, there were false narratives that were pervasive during her time, which basically blamed the victims um, for this type of violence. Early on, there was there was an incident, I believe, in, in 1884, uh, and she was riding a train in, in Memphis when a white conductor uh, questioned her right to be seated where she was. Uh, and, and she had purchased a first-class ticket, and there was really quite a major altercation before she was thrown off the train. Um, can you, how did she respond to that indignity? Well, we have to remember that um, this idea of um, separate but equal um, when it came to public transportation was sort of a new um, concept. My great-grandmother had been riding that train for a while um, with no problems. And then all of a sudden there were these um, laws put in place that were um, segregating things. And she decided to defy that law. And as a result of her being thrown off the train after she actually bought the ticket and written the same train she had written so many times before, she decided to sue the railroad on the basis of separate and unequal when the law said it was supposed to be separate and equal. I mean, when, as you learned about your, your great grandmother's history and her decisions, I mean, were you surprised that, um, that she had such faith in the system that she, you know, decided to sue, that she turned to uh, the practice of, of journalism, that she really worked uh, to bend 
the system to to her will and to her needs? Well, she turned to journalism um, to chronicle what her experience was with the railroad. That was one of the first things that she wrote about. She was in her early 20s when this happened and just starting in her career. Um, she had been writing for church newsletters. Um, and so somebody encouraged her to write about her situation with the train system. Um, she, she initially won the lawsuit um, against the Chesapeake, Ohio and Southwestern Railroad. But then unfortunately it was overturned a couple of years later when it went all the way to the Tennessee Supreme Court. And so that is what um, sort of changed her idea when it came to the ability for African-Americans to get justice, because originally she did get justice, um, but then, you know, it was overturned. And so she turned to journalism as a way to tell her story and to help people understand the level of um, indignation, the, the level of degradation that was happening and the lack of law um, when it came to African-Americans having um, their rights uh, respected. I mean, she has over time become so known for her investigations into lynchings. And in, in 2020, uh, she was uh, posthumously awarded a Pulitzer. Um, and the citation was uh, courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African-Americans during the era of lynching. She came to um, her investigations, though, uh, if I understand correctly, um, because of somewhat very personal reasons, because of what had happened to friends of hers. Can you tell our, our viewers that story? Right. Well, one of the things that I did include in my book, I Had to Be the Queen, and when I was in, um, doing research for it, um, I, I really did look at what happened regarding her friends, um, Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and William Stewart, who were owners of a grocery store, upstanding citizens, leaders in the community. And basically, they were lynched for being successful. Uh, business people. And um, when, she, when my great-grandmother realized that, uh, well, she found out about the lynching because she was out of town when it happened, um, she realized that her friends were not guilty of the crime that was the pervasive narrative at that time, which was African-American men were assaulting and violating white women. And she knew they were not guilty of that at all. So it spurred her to find out how many other people um, who were innocent of any crime were being lynched. Um, and she found out as she investigated that, or she came to con the conclusion that lynching was being used as a form of domestic terrorism in order to um, terrorize the African-American community and um, sort of keep you know, African-Americans in a certain status um, soci uh, uh, sociologically or in, within our society. As, as you uh, looked back on, on her work, I mean, were you, I mean, how, how often or how did you, I guess, make sense of so many of the reasons why people were lynched um, and thinking about the ways in which um, there's still, uh, to some degree, elements of uh, oppression, jealousy that have that continued long after your great your great grandmother's day. I mean, did you did you find parallels um, to um, modern society? 
Um, yes, unfortunately, I do feel uh, that there are quite a few parallels. Um, I mean, she, my great-grandmother grew up during Reconstruction, which was a period right after the Civil War for only 12 years, unfortunately, from 1865 to 1877. But it was a, a period of time um, when there was a lot of progress, um, where uh, Afri newly freed African-Americans had the right to go to school, they had the right to start businesses and own land. Um, men were able to vote in, uh, starting in 1870. And so she grew up during a period of time when there was an enormous amount of progress from being um, property to actually having self-determination. And she grew up in a family. Uh, her father was very politically active. Um, education was very strongly encouraged. Um, and so she had the opportunity to become formally educated. And then there was this backlash that happened. And I think the same thing has happened during my lifetime. I mean, it, it often seems like the period of reconstruction really gets, gets glossed over, gets, um, gets lost in the conversation about um, about black history. I mean, have you found, and as you've talked about your grandma, your great grandmother's life, I mean, do people really understand what Reconstruction was and the, the impact it had on the lives of black Americans? Um, what I have found when I've talked about my great grandmother's life um, is that most people. Well, in this country, we tend to think of the civil rights movement as the 1960s. And so we have this idea that um, there was slavery, slavery ended, um, and then there was Martin Luther King. Um, so basically 100 years um, have, of history were, have been glossed over. Um, and so I, it's not just reconstruction, it's reconstruction. And then what happened around World War One? I? I mean, there was a lot of um, resistance that happened, you know, in between 1865 and, eight, and 1955. And then there was also a lot of resistance that happened before 1865. So I think that, you know, unfortunately, we focus on what happened from 1950 until now. And everything that happened before that is sort of, you know, glossed over. One, one of the stories that um, you, you've talked about that, um, you know, your great-grandmother was involved with is um, the events in Elaine, uh, Arkansas, and the role that she played in, um, you know, in, in wrongfully incarcerated men. Um, can you please share that a bit of that story? Right. Well, in Elaine, Arkansas, there was a um, an effort to uh, create a union um, for for sharecroppers who um, they they re they realized that they were being um, cheated, you know, out of their rightful amount of money they should have been paid for their cotton, and they decided. And these are World War one veterans, and that's very significant, um, the, the, the role that veterans, Black veterans, have played in our country. Um, and they, they, you have to think about, they went and fought for freedom, democracy in another country, and then they come back to their own country and um, suffer these indignities. And so they uh, organized, were in the process of organizing a union and um, were attacked and, and they defended themselves. And then they were the ones that were considered the aggressors and the entire Elaine, Arkansas, um, the community was greatly um, in, 
impacted. I mean, there was a mass murders that happened and uh, t 12 of the men who defended themselves were charged with um, crimes and they were put on, on death row actually. And my great grandmother went to Elaine, Arkansas. She went to visit them in the prison um, and wrote a whole pamphlet about what happened regarding that riot. And ultimately they, they were, um, with the help of the NAACP as well, um, they were released. I mean, I, I'm so struck by the, the the vast reach of your your great grandmother's influence and uh, and ambition when it came to social justice. I mean, were, was there a point at which at which you were have been surprised at the degree to which she was able to sort of see all of these um, interlinking aspects of injustice? I mean, she was really quite um, at the beginning of this idea of intersectionality, where she saw uh, the link between sexism and racism and and oppression uh, writ large. Well, one of the things I tried to do in Ivy the Queen was to help the reader understand all of the different um, issues that were uh, that my great grandmother and all of her contemporaries were facing. Um, I mean, she grew up. Her lifespan is from the the Civil War to the Great Depression, um, and so that 68 year period of her life, there was an enormous amount of um, obstacles that African Americans had to overcome, as well as women, because we have to remember women did not have the right to vote until 1913. So my great grandmother was in her 50s when she finally had that right. Um, so she spent most of her life without having, you know, political. Um, engagement as far as you know, from the ability to vote. And so women, you know, during her time, black women were organizing through club, women's club movements. And that was a way to sort of have self-determination and empowerment as well. And so there were so many things to battle um, that, I, you know, she obviously just took on everything that she could. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, the, the right to vote and I, love the story of her um, when she is working with the, the suffrage movement and, uh, you know, she essentially, you know, highlights the, the racism within the women's movement and her unwillingness to uh, march in the back of, of the parade. I mean, that, I think that's such a powerful moment. And it also certainly speaks to some of the things that, you know, we still struggle with today. Um, can, can you talk a, a little bit about that um, particular incident? I, I think, I hope you know the one that I mean, uh, where she joins the, the marchers from, um, uh, from Illinois as, and joins at the, very, at the front of, of the line. Right, well, during the suffrage movement, you know, when women were, were fighting for the right to vote, um, there was some racial uh, tension um, where some white women, you know, did not welcome black women into their suffrage organizations. And so my great grandmother um, 
started her own, the Alpha Suffrage Club in Chicago for Black women. Now, she had already been involved with several suffrage organizations that were predominantly white, um, but she made the decision to start something that was only for Black women in order to encourage Black women to um, have political empowerment on a local level. And um, and that and I wrote about this in um, Ida Be the Queen, and I also wrote a children's book, a children's picture book, Ida B. Wells' Voice of Truth, so a younger generation, little kids can can learn um, about this this progression that women have had in our country, um, and all of the the challenges that we have overcome as African Americans and as women. I just want to pause for a moment and uh, remind our audience that you can submit questions and comments uh, via Twitter. Uh, just uh, tweet them to post live. Um, and carrying on with that, I mean, when you were when you were researching um, and writing about your great grandmother, um, one of the things that I, I found amazing is, um, as you had mentioned earlier, the backlash to her work. Um, you know, the writing about uh, lynching, doing her investigative reporting. And at one point, um, you know, her offices are destroyed. I mean, how, how did she carry on with her work? And how did she end up in Chicago? Right. Well, after her three friends were killed um, for basically being successful while black, <laughs> um, she she decided. Well, she was wrote about. Um, she encouraged people in Memphis to help make the the, the white community feel um, something, and so she encouraged. Uh, boycotts of the streetcars, uh, boycott of white-owned businesses, and she encouraged those who could leave Memphis to just leave, to go to another place that where there could be justice, uh, because she felt strongly that there was no way you could get justice in a place where the people who are murdering you are the are the law. They're the judges, the sheriff, um, and you know, attorneys, and everybody else who is supposed to be protecting you, um, and so. Because of what she was writing and encouraging people, and there was a mass exodus from Memphis as a result um, of her and I guess other people just feeling like, yeah, we need to go. Um, she was visited and warned to stop what she was doing or else. So she knew her life was in danger, but she just continued um, writing. And uh, ultimately, she uh, wrote um, an article that really um, condemned um, the white community for being complicit in this and also implying that some uh, liaisons between black men and white women were consensual and that was such a volatile um, thing for her to say that her her printing press was destroyed and her life was threatened and she never went back to memphis again i mean some people have called her fearless but you you make a point of saying that um, in fact she she did feel fear, but that she simply moved forward um, with it. I mean, can how, how? I mean, how do you sort of respond and process that ability of this woman who you know was barely five feet tall to know that you know her life had 
been threatened, and yet she kept moving forward with her work. I, I really, when I've tried to sort of get into her head, which is impossible, but, you know, I, I've tried to kind of figure out what drove her. Um, and for me, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do in the, the books that I've written is to humanize her. Um, for me, it was important um, to to see to kind of relate to her as a human being and not the superhero who has no fear, um, who never doubts herself. That's just not realistic to me. And so I always sought um, ways to to figure out like how did she keep forward, keep moving forward in the midst of fear, despite the fear, despite feeling. Um, you know, doubt about herself or feeling alone sometimes. Um, she faced an enormous amount of criticism and she was marginalized. I mean, so her life was not easy. And so the way I processed it in my own mind is that she was so um, focused on, on getting justice and making sure that the situation that led to her friend's death would be known. And she believed that the truth would lead to justice. If only people knew what was really happening, then there would be some pressure on the Southern um, community to stop this lawlessness. And so, um, you know, with her, her quote, um, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them, is exactly what she thought. And she continued on not only writing, but she did a lot of public speaking, not only in this country, but she went to England as well. Um, so she truly believed that the truth would lead to justice. I mean, that, that's a great um, segue to one of the audience questions, and it is from TJ Bird Matarazzo. I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, from Vermont. I teach high school journalism, and I included exploring Ida B. Wells' writing as part of my unit on the historical development of journalism. I'm curious as to whether you've been able to track Wells' inclusion into curricula, how accepted uh, she is in the canon of studies in American literature, history, journalism, journalism, et cetera, and how that may have changed in recent years. Well, I have not necessarily been able to track curriculum around the country, but I did edit two books um, of her writing. One was Ida B. Um, Ida B. Wells, uh, oh my God, um, Ida in her own words, and which has her writings from the uh, World's Fair in 1893, and Ida from Abroad has her writings from England. And the reason I uh, edited those two books was to make her work acceptable and accessible um, to students. Um, and so that was my hope, you know, that it would be incorporated into curriculum. I mean, just in, in the last few years, um, there have been, um, you know, monuments and, and exhibitions um, devoted to her story. I mean, are you finding that the stories of Black women and their um, impact on history, are, are we getting better at telling their stories or are we still um, missing um, the, the contributions of, of countless women? Well, I've been involved in um, creating, having a, a monument um, created in honor of my great grandmother in Chicago, the Ida B. Wells National Monument um, by Richard Hunt in Bronzeville. Um, 
And then the street naming Ida B. Wells Drive in Chicago, which I was involved in making happen. Um, and then there's historical markers, honorary street names um, in Chicago. I've been involved in a lot of different projects, including uh, most recently a suffrage mural that incorporates um, 10 different Chicago area suffragists um, and my great grandmother being one of them. And so in these projects, um, there has been enthusiasm, there has been buy-in from community um, and other um, stakeholders. But there have actually I have run into resistance, um, you know. So everybody is not on board with celebrating Black women's contributions to this country, and considering that only seven percent of all uh, public artwork or tributes to women, period, um, is in this country, and then you break it down by race, then we're still greatly underrepresented. In Chicago, we only have two. Um, public uh, artwork in, in tribute to Black women, which is Gwendolyn Brooks and, and Ida B. Wells. And that's in the last, since, 19, since 2018. Um, so we have a long way to go when it comes to true representation that's um, in proportion to our uh, population. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know how you are feeling about um, um, the growing discomfort that so many people seem to have in, in grappling with some of the um, some of our history, particularly as it pertains to to race. Well, some people seem to feel that if if anybody um, is rep is recognized for um, their contributions, then that means they are being erased. Um, and and so there's not this idea that there's there's enough space for everybody. It's like you know, and, and um, you know, so there's that fear, I guess, of of, of the great replacement or something, um, which I think is unfortunate because all of us are part of this country and we have all contributed in our own ways, and all of those contributions need to be recognized. So it's not a matter of if Black women get recognition and then other people are erased. It's we're all included, um, and and we do need to. Um, get to a better place where people can see that they are not being erased. They're just being, there's just addition. You know, how, how have you been able to, or try to process the, the backlash that has been bubbling up um, simply when President Biden announces that he plans to nominate a black woman to the, to the Supreme Court? Again, that seems like a, a great disconnect between history and sort of writing um, um, gaps in, in our progress. Right, well, the fact that we've had 115 Supreme Court justices and 108 of them have been white men. And I guess people who are having an issue with the idea of a black woman being considered don't want to think about those 108 white men um, being um, the result of affirmative action for white men. Um, I guess in their mind, it's just normal. Uh, but if a black woman is considered, then that's affirmative action. So, you know, there we, <laughs> it's just kind of an interesting way of thinking about the world that it's okay for white men to get, you know, almost what 90% of the opportunities. But if a, 
if anybody else is considered, then it's um, set aside program or some kind of special, uh, you know, being treated in a special way versus them actually being qualified just the same way that the white men were. I mean, if there's if there's any lesson, um, well, there are a multitude of lessons, I'm sure, but um, if there is a, a, a single lesson you could distill down that you hope people take from um, the work and the actions of your great-grandmother, um, what might that be? I mean, to speak up. Um, you know, that's to me her, her biggest legacy is that where she saw injustice and equality, um, that she decided to not be silent about it. Um, she happened to be a journalist, which gave her a platform that might be um, broader than some other people's platforms. But we all have the ability to speak up in our own ways, and we all have the ability to organize. And that was one of the things she did as well. I mean, she was the founder, co-founder of the NAACP and the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. Um, she was involved in, um, you know, she, she founded the Alpha Suffrage Club. She founded the Negro Fellowship League here in Chicago. So in addition to her individual work, she was very collaborative as well. And we all can, can do that. Well, we're going to have to leave it there on that um, inspiring note. Um, we are out of time, but I would very much like to thank my guest, Michelle Duster, for being with me today. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.